0: you're listening to live from city lights a podcast of readings and archives from city lights
1: books and publishers to learn more visit www.citylights.com
2: greetings everybody peter maravellis here on behalf of city lights booksellers and publishers and the city lights foundation I'd like to welcome you to another installment of City Lights Live, the virtual extension of our events calendar where we continue to celebrate the works of authors we know and love through readings, discussions, and forums. As is customary at the outset of each event, I'd like to acknowledge that we are beaming to you from the unseated ancestral grounds of the Ramatushaloni peoples, also known as the San Francisco Bay Area. We'd like to take this moment to offer respect to those who have come before us as stewards of the land. Tonight, City Light celebrates the publication of *Secret Harvests*, a hidden history of separation and the resilience of a family farm by David Mas Masumoto, with artwork by Patricia Wakita. It is published by the lovely people at Red Hen Press. David Mas Masumoto's new memoir follows the journey of discovering a long-lost aunt, separated by racism and the discrimination of people with developmental disabilities. His family is reunited 70 years later, returning to their roots. Secret Harvests is an exploration of identity and the meaning of family and the connection farmers experience to the land. David Masumoto is an organic farmer, author, and activist. His book, Epitaph for a Peach, won the Julia Child Cookbook Award and was a finalist for the James Beard Award. He has received numerous additional honors for his work he farms with his wife Marcy and two adult children, Nico and Coro. They reside on the outskirts of Fresno, California, in a hundred-year-old farmhouse surrounded by their 80-acre farm, where they harvest organic peach, nectarine, apricot, and raisins. Joining him tonight is Patricia Wakita. Patricia is a linoleum block and letterpress artist and a native of Fresno, California. She is the founder of the linoleum block and letterpress studio under the Wasabi Press imprint. She frequently writes about Japanese American history and culture. She makes her home in Oakland, California with her family. Uh, join us now in giving a warm welcome to David Moss Masumoto and Patricia Wakita. Welcome to City Lights.
1: <laughs> welcome. Thank you, Peter. Thank you. Thank you all. It's a pleasure to be here. And it's certainly I'm in my basement of our farmhouse. It's a hundred year old farmhouse and there's probably a hundred year old rejected manuscripts that are sitting to my side on there. Uh, I also, this, Uh, Basement service, also for our farm office and incubator, uh, which also means then I'm not very much of a Mui Kondo fan, as you could tell in the background. Uh, So things just keep collecting down here, but I love it because this is who I write. And during the pandemic, That's when this book, Secret Harvest, was born. Uh, It allowed me the time to really focus in. Uh, This book, in many ways, was was a journey into family and family questions, and it became a journey into myself more than anything. I did not anticipate that. Let me read just a a first paragraph, and it might sort of frame uh, the book and also frame the discussion I'd love to have with, with all of you today. I farm with ghosts. They live in our fields. Each peach tree has pruning scars from generations who worked these orchards. Every vine has been shaped by hands of workers who who returned each year to add their touch to the sculpture. People and their families have etched their marks on my farm and I too hope to leave behind a simple signature on this seemingly ordinary landscape. Ghosts inhabit our family history. And that is exactly the way um, this book unfolded. It was this idea of uh, this family coming together in different ways I did not expect. It's about a lost aunt. Uh, I discovered this lost aunt about 10 years ago when I got this phone call that there was this woman who uh, uh, said... uh, this woman said that we found your lost aunt. And I said, this doesn't make any sense. I know all my family. And she started explaining me something. Uh, this aunt, when uh, she was five years old in 1925, had contracted meningitis. And uh, she had an intellectual disability at that time. And our family, we were a farm worker family. We were poor. My grandparents, my aunt's parents did not speak English. We were uh, in a rural area. Health care was very limited. And so after my aunt got this meningitis, she stopped growing intellectually and she was disabled the rest of her life. Uh, and the family did their best to care for a disabled child, especially through, through the Great Depression. Then, of course, World War II came and the internment of all Japanese Americans. And one of the big questions was, what do they do with this aunt? Her name was Shizuko. Uh, There was such a huge cloud of unknowns. Could she be better off someplace else? What was the future of our family? No one knew what to do. So uh, my uh, uh, family gave her up, gave my aunt up to become what they called a ward of the state. And I want to read a little passage of that moment as I piece together this history. My aunt explained that it was so very hard. Shizuko clung to my grandmother, refusing to let go. She was afraid of these strangers who were going to take her away. My grandmother wept as the men guided Shizuko away into a car. Over and over, Shizuko cried out one of the few words she could mouth, Mama, Mama. Then my grandmother pulled my uncle aside and made a request. Ask the authorities for a promise. Yakusoku she said, promise, then she added make them vow they will take care of her, honor that promise, the request was made, authorities quietly nodded their heads, they affirmed their conviction, my uncle returned to reassure my grandmother that he said the authorities swore they would take care of Shizuko, they would honor the promise, yakusoku o mamaru, they vowed to protect the promise. The same government that was imprisoning my family and uprooting tens of thousands was now promising to take care of my aunt with her disability. Of course, there's a twist to this story. Uh, The authorities did take care of my aunt. She survived from 1942 until I got a phone call in 2012. And the phone call was ironically from a funeral home in Fresno. My aunt, Shizuko, had suffered a stroke, and uh, this uh, this funeral home had a contract to, uh, to bury her. And this wonderful woman, a woman that was like I consider an unsung hero, did not want my aunt to die alone. So she looked up the 1930 census and found my mom's name and my aunt Shizuko and started going through making random phone calls until they stumbled on my phone number and said that this aunt is alive. I did not believe her at that time. So I went in and talked with her. She showed me the paperwork. She showed me the 1930 census. I still didn't believe her. So I went to the regional center, which was taking, had the contract to take care of my aunt, who was a, again, a ward of the state. Uh, they, showed the paperwork, it all started making more sense. I still didn't believe it. So I went to the assisted care center where uh, Shizuko was, and I walked in the room, and she, there she was, quiet and comatose because she had the stroke. And it dawned on me, this is this lost aunt. So I went back to home. I talked. I told my mom, sit down, you know, Aunt Shizuko. And my mom said, oh, yeah, she passed away long time ago, many years ago. I said, no, Aunt Chizuko, who was separated from the family for seven decades, Aunt Chizuko is alive in Fresno a few miles from our farm. It was a stunning revelation for my family. It was hard because there was this rush of emotions that hit all at the same time. Of course, this idea of of this unbelievable story that was being unfolded, but also feelings of guilt. Shame, uh, the emotions you would expect, but all a lot of that trauma, that uh, that came from the whole uh, upbringing of of raising someone with a disabilities, and also then the internment of World War II and uh, trying to reclaim the past. So I set upon this journey then to try to piece together this story. Who was this Aunt Shizuko? What did happen? Tell me more uh, about the uh, meningitis. What was the state of healthcare in 1925, especially for poor rural immigrants? Uh, What happened at World War II? Why did they become a ward of the state and would they really take care of her? Uh, What with all the stories. So I pulled together as much information, doing as much research as I can. But one of the things that struck me most was this idea that we always are trained to think about history in a certain way. Let me share this passage from uh, Secret Harvest. This story embodies an emotional legacy, building empathy through imagination in order to accept Shizuko into our family. I restore memory by creating memory and reclaiming the past. How do I remember when there's so little to remember? I struggled by seeking information instead of senses, but it was only when I began to look backwards, collecting details anchored in dates and places and going beyond that, that I began to employ emotions and feelings. I tend not to think of history filled with emotions and feelings because we tend to think of history as being about facts and dates. And then it occurred to me, of course, who writes that history and who documents that? It tends to be those that have power. And of course, and especially for immigrants, especially for those that do not look American, that went through different types of moments of history, All of that became uh, evident as I was trying to piece together the story of this lost aunt Uh, and I'd have to rely on ironically emotions and imaginations to fill in the blanks because we had no record of her I could not get access to her records from 1942 until I I met her in 2012 I found out a few details here and there but there were so much sketches that I couldn't put everything together and then of course trying to talk to my family about it was a very, very challenging uh, subject. And it took time because they too were embarrassed, they were ashamed, but yet at the same time, they understood that resilience that they had to get them through all the trauma in their life. And I had to respect that. One of the terms that I grew up with was this idea of gaman in Japanese. It roughly translates into to have endurance, to be, to persevere. And I often couldn't understand that because growing up on the farm, uh, when things didn't go right, you know, nature didn't cooperate, prices of fruit weren't good. Uh, my folks always said, just you know, come on, we just have to endure to that. And they also used another term, shikata ganai, it can't be helped. And I thought at a certain point that was almost like an excuse that they were using uh, instead of facing some of the reality As I was writing this book, especially thinking of the gamban, the power to persevere and the shigata ganai, the uh, idea that you have to sometimes accept things and accept circumstances, especially thinking about the life of Shizuko, I began to change my perspective on that. So often in Secret Harvest, I refer back to those two terms and how it evolved uh, as I was writing the book and began to understand uh, Shizuko's story more and more. Uh, in many ways part of the uh, process was to make sure i asked questions and part of those asking questions was the idea of filling in those blanks we had no photographs of chisuko there was no documents to represent her and i never understood that uh, because if my family thought she had passed away why wasn't there a plaque in the mausoleum Uh, that uh, the Sugimoto family was. Uh, And of course, it had to do with they never had ashes for her, but yet was her memory wiped away or was it part of it in a different context? And that's why I use this term called recuperative memory, where you try to remember things that often people want to forget. Uh, And it's really important, I think, to respect the fact that Not everyone remembers everything, or do they want to remember everything. Uh, The context of history uh, was something that always jumped out at me. Because when I was young, I thought, oh, if internment happened today, I would fight. I would go out there and protest and get arrested. As I got older, I began to think in a different context, especially, for example, with my father. My father was a second son. The older son had been drafted into the U.S. Army before Pearl Harbor. So when Pearl Harbor came and internment hit, he had to take over uh, being responsible for the family. And it occurred to me, huh, maybe at that point you had to persevere in a different way. You had to find that ganai. things can't be helped. So the, my perspective began to change. And that, that was part of the uh Part of the genesis of writing this book about my aunt, trying to understand how did she persevere through all this, what was her attitudes and and uh, trying to piece together as best I can. One of the things that struck me in writing uh, this book was the role of farming as part of our family uh you know our, my both sides of my family uh, they were farmers in japan from kumamoto in southern japan and hiroshima and they settled in the fresno area and were farm workers uh, of course my grandparents because they were aliens uh could not own land because of the alien land laws that targeted uh orientals from owning land uh, and i write about a passage where uh, i found that uh Some there are court cases in the 1920s about, you know, what constitutes an Oriental. And and around that time, there are many Armenians that came to the Fresno area. Uh, They were escaping the genocide, they wanted to buy land. So there's a court case. Are Armenians Asian or are they European? Because really, Armenian is right on that border of of Eurasia. And a court case defined uh, Armenians as white Asians. So therefore, they could buy farmland, where Japanese Americans could not. And it set this different path for these two different groups. But it it did capture that, that idea that this is the context of the life that Shizuko uh, was born into and was raised especially as someone with a disability. One of the things that struck me, though, was thinking about that relationship to the land And the metaphor, for example, of Shizuko and what it took for her to survive. So I I write a a few passages in uh, uh, Secret Harvest about a rock that's very common to our farm in this area. And some of you may know this and may be groaning when you see this. This is hard pan. Uh, It's actually not a rock. It's really uh, uh, earth that's been... all. The life has been sucked out of it, and it's compressed into these layers of, of clay, and it, they layer sheets of, throughout California. This is part of our family story, because the reason why my dad, after World War II, could buy our farm was because it was full of this damn rock. It was full of hardpan. In other words, the land was cheap. No one wanted it. It was a misfit land for misfits what Japanese Americans were after the war. So this is part of the legacy of our farm. And it's also the legacy of Shizuko because she was a misfit in that era and she had to find a way to survive through that. So in many ways that rock is I think a a perfect metaphor for Shizuko and the life that she had to go through. And at the same time, the life of my family as they're going through almost uh, through like these parallel universes. Even though they were separated in 1942, Shizuko was in this area and then went out of the area and then came back roughly in the 1970s. And for about 50 years, she was a few miles from our farm and we never knew uh, at, different, at different times and stuff. But I think that's the idea of that dynamic of these two universes, these parallel universes that then suddenly crossed because uh, of this woman at a funeral home. Who wanted to make sure Shizuko wouldn't die alone? Now, of course, Shizuko did wake up from that uh, stroke, and it started a second chapter uh, of her relationship with our family. And I'll get to that uh, because now I'd actually like to shift the years a little uh, and have uh, turned this over to Patricia Wakita, who did these amazing illustrations that were part of this book too. Because in because we had no picture of Shizuko. We had to use our imagination in order to frame her. And the reason why I love this idea because is because without a picture, there's a tendency to, th- to think of her as being invisible. And of course, that's the last thing that she was. She was very visible and part of that other parallel history that was going on in our family. So Patricia, would you mind taking over now? Sure.
0: <clears throat> Peter, if you don't mind also pulling up the, The PowerPoint, but I'm going to start by saying, because this is an interesting segue, um, is that of all the books that Maz has published, I think you've done 10 so far, um, this was a really tough story to illustrate, but I do think that there was a reason that this book and Shizuko brought us together. Um, I think that because we're both from the Central Valley and that we're both um, Japanese American and have layered histories that we share about camp, um, it really seemed like the book for me to, to work with Moss on, um, there is a lot of complicated history and there's a lot of complicated secrets and I really understand how impactful that is to this particular community. So again, I'm really incredibly grateful for Moss to inviting me to work with him on this particular book. So um, I just wanted to start by saying thank you again to City Lights and to all of you for joining us. I'm seeing some amazing faces that I'm so happy to see. Um, And I am a fourth generation Japanese American, as I mentioned. And as Peter said, my choice of medium is linoleum blocks. So I carve things with knives and print them on presses. So I'll start by saying that in 2018, uh, was when Moss actually invited me to start illustrating this very personal story. Um, and it, it again, it, I think it was the right time for me to work on something like this, because I've been thinking so much about incarceration into the next generation. And She's a Close Story um, covers seven, seven decades, and um, it really resonated with me. So go ahead, go to the next slide, please. And when Moss first approached me with this idea, like I like I said, back in 2018, we weren't sure how many illustrations were gonna be needed. And the, the manuscript honestly was still evolving. There was a draft of it and it probably evolved maybe, I don't know, four times more um, while we were working on it. And maybe I'll ask Moss to talk about this later, but there were many, 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 many other drafts before he even showed it to me. Um, next slide. So with the aid of a lot of historical research in the family photographs, there ended up being 34, sorry, 34 linoleum block prints that were created. And part of this also encouraged me to go to the Moss and Motor Farm in Delray, which is not far from my parents' home, and to take photographs of tools and processes that I thought were useful for creating the work. So here are some photos of Moss harvesting some grapes with this very antiquated looking tool, but it's the same tool that's been being used for generations to do the exact same thing, which is cutting through that very tough vine. And then the family uses, uh, our family uses the same techniques to dry raisins and create raisins that we have for generations, which is to lay them on paper in between rows of grapes and let them dry in the sun. Next slide. Those images became these sketches and linoleum blocks, um, prints that eventually made it into the book. Next slide. Um, I should also say that, um, you know, some of these historical images were things that I pulled from WRA photographs, which is the War Relocation Authority images, but I had to tweak them a little bit. I really wanted to make them um, still resonate with Moss's story. Um, His family and my family went to Gila River but you can see in, in this example of a process of where I was drawing directly onto the linoleum block on the left. And then after carving it, you can see some details are added, more texture. And that's how, you know, that's basically a process for me. And I do everything with pencil. Um, I'm really not a digital artist. And what you get is what you have. And so the, even the, the printing process is all analog as well. So next slide. Um, here's another example of process. So I asked my, uh, my husband and my son to enact a dance called the Tankobushi, um which is a song and a dance that's performed usually in the summer for a festival of ancestors called Awon. It's a Buddhist festival. But I never, well, you know, when we usually do the dance, we just mime the shovels. So I asked them to put in the shovels. And the next slide, that photograph became the block that's um, that's in the book. So go ahead to the next slide, Peter. Um, and you'll note that the image is flipped because this is the way also that um, block printing works. Relief printing is, is a reversed, mirrored kind of process. So what you see here then gets inked up and then it's printed and it becomes the face wave as before. Next slide. So this is going to be the last slide that I'm going to talk to you a little bit about a process. So to create the image on the cover was Shizuko. Like Ma said, we had no photos to reference. However, I knew, I I knew how to place her in a certain time and place, and I and that's pre-war 1920s. Um, I knew that she was around 22 years old or 23 years old in 1942 when the family was forced off their farm um, due to Executive Order 9066, and they were separated from Shizuko at that time. So I started doing some research about. Sun protection and what the Issei and Nisei would be wearing, the first and second generation Japanese Americans would be wearing out in the fields at that time. And that bonnet really stood out. I mean, this is a brutal heat. So next slide. And more grapes. Um, I I really was mesmerized by the hundred year old uh, vines that are still on the Masumoto farms and just how productive they are and how How deep their roots go in the Central Valley. Um, They are a very core crop and um, maybe have been for more than any other cultivated crop there. I'm not sure about that part. But um, it was really fascinating for me also to do research about the recycled fabrics and how to get that stiffness of the brim. And then there was another layer that Moss shared with me about the bonnet that I was not aware of before that was very important to me later, and that is that women, of course, today still wear these kinds of face protections in the the fields, partly to protect them from the sun and from any kind of exposure to scratches or itchiness from plants as they're harvesting or working, but another layer of this is because it actually aids in anonymity so that it's not always obvious that these are women that are working in the fields, which hopefully helps give them another layer of protection against sexual assault or sexual um, harassment in the fields, which is prevalent back then and it is prevalent today. So next slide, you'll see the sketches that I um, started on the linoleum. I'll just talk and just say that again, that. Towards, I I was able to work out the bonnet as a major part of Shizuko's portrait. Um, And then it got even fuller and, and wanted to have her surrounded by those vines. So these are the first two sketches. The one on the left is paper and the one on the right is on the linoleum itself. And then last slide, I think it should be the last slide. Maybe there's two more. And then you see on the far right, after I'd carved it and inked it and then printed it, you see the printed one on the left, which is what became the cover. Um, And then I watercolor painted that before I submitted it digitally to Red Hen Press. I think there might be one more slide and that's the very end. But again, I using my imagination was a huge piece of pulling this all together. And um, I really, the story is dedicated to entangling her story Um, And surrounding the life without her there. Um, I realize here that this is a video and I think we're going to skip it for time, but uh, it's it's been a journey and I'm very proud of the work that we've accomplished together. So thank you, Moss. And thank you, Peter.
1: Thank you, Patricia. Again, it was uh, uh, such a joy to work with Patricia uh, and to grapple with these family secrets in yet everything was gonna be public. I mean, cause I decided at one point I wanted to write a book about this. So how do you deal with family secrets when you're writing a book? Uh, and one of the challenges was I wasn't gonna do one of these kiss and tell books where I tried to expose everything. Uh, the wild thing, the interesting thing was as this story unfolded, I couldn't find the bad guy, the bad person. At first I thought, oh, I'm sure she's a cool, uh, And she did go through a lot of tough times But her caregivers were amazing. And that's why she survived 70 years of institutional care. When I first met Shizuko, she was 90 years old. She had survived decades of institutional care. As I said, when I first met Shizuko, uh, she was comatose. She had suffered a stroke and uh, brought the family together in these amazing, wonderful, and awkward moments we tried to come together with a piece of living history in front of them. Uh, but because Shizuko was comatose, there was a sense that, uh, that she was going to pass away. So we started making uh, plans for her funeral and a memorial service. Three months later, <clears throat> Shizuko woke up. Uh, And it was stunning when I got the phone call because we thought she was going to pass away. She wasn't in a special ICU unit or anything. She was just in a basic assisted care facilities. But it was because of these amazing caregivers, they figured out a way to actually feed her while she was comatose. Uh, And so she woke up three months later, and this was the beginning of looking at family secrets round two where it suddenly, I had to make these phone calls to family saying, Shizuko? And they said, yeah, they thought I was phoning because we're gonna start planning for the funeral. I said to my family, my mom, my aunt, my uncle, my cousins, Shizuko woke up. So it started round two of all these stories that needed to be probed into, and yet in a very, very difficult way. Uh, So we had a second family reunion with Shizuko and a second opportunity for some of these stories to sort of uh, uh, be exposed. <clears throat> when Shizuko first woke up, I was called and I ran over to go visit her, right? Uh, she was in a wheelchair at this time. So I went up to her and, and I uh, introduced myself, you know, and be, actually before I saw her, I saw one of the workers at the uh, assisted care center. And I said, he said, who are you? And I said, well, I'm her nephew. And he looked at me and he goes, where have you been all these years? And he was spot on. He was right. I tried to explain that. We didn't know she was here. But the whole idea, though, that she had developed a different family. And the family was those people at her assisted care center. So I go up to Shizuko and made up this line of introduction that, Shizuko, it's an honor to meet you and I'm your nephew. And she looked at me. And then she kicked me. She kicked me in the leg. And I went, what? And then she pointed to her shoe because the shoe needed tying, And it was a sign of how she survived. She was feisty. She wasn't going to hold back. If she needed something, she would ask for it. So I got to meet her, talk to her more. Of course, she couldn't, she didn't know who I was. She didn't shouldn't speak very much at all. Uh, So how do I get these stories? I talked to her caregivers and the caregivers had all these wonderful stories. And the more I found about, uh, about Shizuko, the more I realized that she was this different life that was just exploding for those 70 years. They said Shizuko loved to go up to people and pinch them. Shizuko was only about four feet and about 80 pounds. All right. She was a tiny, tiny woman, but she would go up to people, pinch them and run away and giggle all the time. And she developed a relationship with all these people around her. She was full of life. My favorite story is Shizuko loved hot, hot coffee in the morning. So when they gave her this hot coffee, she'd slowly sip it. And when she was done, she'd get the cup and throw it over her shoulder. So they quickly realized they had to change from any glass cup or anything to styrofoam. And then she would still keep doing it and hit people behind her. So they said, we have to put a a, a wall behind her. And that's how she was. She was very independent, very, very uh, uh, outgoing. She had a life of her own. It gave me insight into what her life was as our family was coming back from relocation, farming, and trying to carve a life. In many ways, I had to laugh, and I write about that in Secret Harvest. Chizuko forgot how to be Japanese. And that's how she survived in many ways. Uh, And it was just a wild notion of comparing that lifestyle she had with my family's history, right? Uh, And I tried to do these parallels. My family comes back from the relocation camps. Uh, uh, They, in many ways, and I use this line, uh, they saved face by not having a face. They tried to be invisible. That's how they survived uh, all the racism post-World War II. uh, My dad would tell stories that we would grow these wonderful peaches, but we couldn't use our name on the box because people didn't want to buy Jap peaches. And the irony was, of course, we packed them and we used the Japanese-American broker, a Japanese-American trucker, uh, the distributor down in Los Angeles who, who, spread, who sent it to all those grocery stores. It had the fingerprints of Japanese-Americans and people ate them because they tasted fantastic. So there's this wild dynamic of what was going on with our family, our family history, working in the fields. At the same time, Shizuko was work, living through these different assisted care centers uh, and trying to survive. One of the stories that came up, and it was, it was a wonderful story, because I was asking about uh, our family, what happened after camp? Really, the question was, why didn't they try to find Chizuco? And one uncle told me this amazing story. My grandfather was a carpenter. He worked in the fields, but he really was a carpenter. And he uh, uh, made all these uh, wooden pagodas in a Japanese garden that they kept behind their house with these intricate patterns of it. Uh, One of the things he made was butsudans, Buddhist altars for our families. My family, when the war came, didn't know what to do with this altar. They couldn't take it with them to these relocation camps. So they contacted a neighbor and asked the neighbor, would you store these for us? We don't know when we're going to come back, if we're going to come back. The amazing thing was it was an Armenian farmer who neighbor who they started with. And I kept thinking about that. What was that like to have someone come and say, we want to store these wooden pagan altars for someone who's deemed the enemy. And interestingly, it was Armenians that reached out because they understood genocide. They understood how to be judged. So they took care of these altars. So when my family came back, my uncles had the fortitude to go collect these altars. And we still have them in our houses now. Parallel to that, was this idea of Shizuko going through these different um, uh, institutions that she was at. And one of the institutions that I did find records that she was at was DeWitt uh, Center, which is up near Auburn, north of Sacramento in the foothills. And this was a facility that you could imagine back then through the 50s and 60s. It housed like three or four thousand uh uh, residents, patients who all had mental disabilities and they were housed in this one center, they had staff. And, um, uh, I wanted to, so I went to go visit there, uh, knowing that it had been at, it had closed in the seventies, uh, because in the seventies, uh, Governor Reagan signed this bill to decommission those large institutions, and uh, patients went to these smaller centers, and that's when Shizuko came back to the Fresno area in the 70s. But I went to go visit DeWitt because this was Shizuko's home for 20 years. It's still there. It's now used by a number of of agencies. There's a, a, a... a senior center there, they have a health center there, a lot of empty barrack-like buildings. Uh, But they also had a historical society that was based there. So I went to visit the historical society and and asked if anyone had worked at DeWitt uh, when they had patients. And I was introduced to a music teacher. And a music teacher, I contacted and I asked, did you happen to know a woman named Shizuko Sugimoto, tiny, four foot, and of course, She didn't remember that because of so many years, but she did uh, work with many, many, many of the clients there. And I said, what was it like? And she said, oh, it was wild because these are all clients that have certain um, mental disabilities. So when they would uh, form a little band, it would have all these percussion instruments. And I imagine she's just pounding on something, pounding on something out of rhythm, making noise, making all this racket. So I asked the teacher, oh, that must have been so hard, you being a uh, music teacher and a musician. And she stopped me and she goes, no. That was music to my ears. That's when I began to piece together how Shizuko had these caregivers that took care of her, that understood her, that accepted her for what she was and how she was. So these are part of those family secrets that I was probing into. We tend to think of family secrets in the negative, that there's something terrible and bad and hush-hush. In the middle of this exploration of Shizuko, there are these other secrets that also expose this almost amazing, wonderful side of her, of her people around her, and even of my family, of how they try to cope with this uh, and understand this idea of separation. One of the stories I write about in Secret Harvest was through one cousin, she said, you know, I heard this story from my dad, but I, I was never supposed to talk about it. And I said, what was that? Excuse me. And this was my uncle. And uh, my cousin said, my dad, my uncle, after the war, maybe in 1940, maybe 46, 47, him and their grandmother, Shizuko's mom, did look up and found Shizuko. And I said, what? How come no one talks about it? Uh, the story, and we don't know all the details, but the story was uh, Shizuko was in a mental uh, facility called Porterville, which again was this huge, large facility that housed hundreds, if not thousands in this facility. They went to go see her. This is the family who just came back from the camps. They were farm workers living in shacks, rented land, uh, very hungry. Poor, they had no money, uh, and they went to see Shizuko. Shizuko was being taken care of, was being fed, and the fam the word was they said, we think she's in a better place right now than we could provide. So the story was that my uncle and my grandmother turned to each other and they said, "We're going to let Shizuko go because she's better off." And then they left her and they vowed never to talk about that moment. And that's why I never heard that story. My mom never heard that story. But my cousin happened to pick up on it and shared that story with me as I was probing more into these family secrets. And for me, again, part of that family secrets wasn't to judge them, but to understand what was the context of that history and understand this is part of the story that we all carry with us. And definitely part of that for uh, my family, for Japanese Americans, for Asian Americans, has to do with this theme of disabilities. And in many ways, there's a cultural frame of shame that comes with disabilities. And this was all this learning exercise that I went through. And I was very, very uh, fortunate that I befriended Alice Wong who's one of these amazing, amazing writers, woman with a disability who's feisty too. And she uh, and, and she and I exchanged a lot of emails and she helped educate me, uh, teach me. Uh, uh, I was using all sorts of really incorrect perspectives and language in dealing with Shizuko's disability. Uh, and, and, and yet at the same time, I wanted to capture my ignorance, which was actually part of mainstream America too. Uh, uh, and and understand that. Uh, for example, I write about and she's in uh, Secret Harvest. Um, I was talking to my daughter about yeah that I stumbled on the fact that during World War II, uh, a lot of conscientious objectors who did not want to fight in the uh, the for the U.S. Army uh, uh, were assigned to mental facilities, mental hospitals. It was their of punishment that they would do instead of serving their country. Uh, And many of these facilities were filmed with conscientious objectors who then in turn, I think, provided care for these people with a mental disability. Back then, uh, the term that we often use with people with uh, Down syndrome was mongoloid. They were a mongoloid idiot was the term that was very common at that time. And I remember talking with my daughter about that. She goes, what are you talking about, that?" And I said, that was the term that that was common. And they go, why? And it's because some down, one of the characteristics of someone with Down syndrome is that their face gets contorted and they look sort of Asian. And that's where the idea of they look like a mongoloid, a Mongolian at that time. The twisted fact, though, was that Perhaps during the war, when Japanese were the enemy, Shizuko was housed in a mental facility with other Down syndrome patients, and maybe she wasn't Japanese. She was Mongoloid, and that was perhaps gave her a different type of care that happened. Again, these are very, very uh, some of the stories that kind of float around and fill in part of those dynamics of how history is told and, and experienced in different contexts. And that's part of that cultural frame that I was trying to understand and trying to get at in many different ways. And that's why this theme of disabilities permeates this story. And at the same time, my own family had this this. Confusion, this distance from it at the same time, which is very characteristic of most of the nation, and it still is in many ways. The other part of writing this story had also to do with the idea that we farmed. And in many ways, there was this theme, a Japanese term called wabi sabi, which talks about life is imperfect, impermanent, and incomplete in many ways that's the same themes that Shizuko grew up with and it's the same themes i grew up on a farm and i still farm that way farming organically the understanding that i will try to try to grow the perfect peach but knowing that perfection is not something that's always found in nature the idea that as we farm things are never complete there's always more to do more work to do, and always more to look forward to. And also things aren't permanent on the farm. Nature is always changing things. And certainly with climate change, we understand that power of nature. And at the same time, that's actually the same power that Shizuko represented because she was imperfect, she was impermanent and she was incomplete. So I think, again, this notion of these parallel universes always struck me in many different ways. And I try to capture that as much as I can in the book and understand how things in farming and things in the story of people with in, in the disabilities communities are plowed back into all of us, plowed back into our fields, plowed back into the peaches and nectarines that we grow. It's part of how you want. To, I want people to remember where their food and their stories come from. So part of that idea, too, for all of us, I hope we could think about uh, family secrets, but think about in the a, in a terms of a question. What's one question you would want to ask your family? All of us have secrets in our families. But what would be a question you'd want to ask? And sometimes when you frame it as a question as opposed to a secret, it doesn't have so much edge to it and then maybe at the next family gathering you'll ask that question. And that's exactly what happened with me with my family the idea that we're going to uh, I'm going to have to ask these questions of my family, not challenge him saying, what was the secret you're trying to keep this whole time? Let me end with this one passage that's at the end of the book that I think really captures the the theme of the story of Shizuko, the story of disabilities, and also the story of our farm and how they all fuse together as we try to grapple with family secrets. I believe Shizuko would have been a great farmer, There's an adage circulating in the farm communities. I heard it after a hailstorm destroyed a block of our peaches just days before harvest. A farmer down the street knew that we had gotten hail and he had gotten hail. So he told me this story. He said that there is something about farming that has silence. Then he told me this story. They did an autopsy on some old farmers. And when they opened them up, they found they were all filled with next years. Shizuko is filled with next years. And I hope all of us, too, are filled with these family stories and family secrets of next years. Thank you for letting me share these stories with you. Thank you. Thank you very much. And I think we have a few more minutes and uh, we could continue the conversation. If there's some questions you have, certainly Patricia and I could have a conversation too. Patricia.
0: Sure. You know, actually there's questions. I want to make time for people because we are running a little late. Um, I do think I'll just even read out Amy Hunter from Portland Um Has a question for you, Masa. Is anyone in your family uncomfortable with you sharing Shizuku's story or the process that your family went and all of the reactions? Like, what was that like?
1: Absolutely. (laughs) This is family. (laughs) Uh, uh, And and there was pushback uh, in a subtle way. But the way I think... I think the family trusted me to tell the story. And as as you read this book, again, it wasn't trying to expose the negative. It was just trying to understand the context of history and how it was. And even some of the family members I thought would push back the most um, nodded their heads. And that made me feel really good, too. And I think it was part of that idea that this is a family story that needs to be passed down because it defines who we are. And it's part of that legacy that we all carry within us. Shizuko is carried within us, and exactly her life uh, is part of our legacy. So, yes, thank you for the question. But, yeah, and uh, let me tell you, I'm still uncomfortable sharing some parts of this story because it's personal. And that's exactly what I think gives the strength to the story. I take it very personally.
0: Maso, I had a question for you, and it's it's about mental health. Um, this is something that you do touch upon in your book, and it's something that I had to really unpack my own emotions and thoughts and opinions about it, since it's not talked about that much in the Asian American community by large, whether it's a current kind of health um, care kind of situation or something back in 1932, um, which is what Chisical was partly also surrounded by. But in the story, I'm specifically referring to the stories of your Ba-chan, um, the grandmother, who has a breakdown of emotions. Mm. And I'd love for you to talk about that, but there's also a chapter that I was really fascinated by, and this was something that was difficult for me to illustrate, but it it I, I saw the picture in my mind also when I read it. And this has to do with the World War II veteran who had gone and fought in the US Army while his family was incarcerated. And he had, there were members of the family who were lost in inaction. And there's just this sense of rage and injustice and sorrow and loss. And I, I'm just kind of curious about your takes on writing about the mental health impacts that EO9066 had.
1: One of the things, again, I did not plan to write this. Okay, the story unfolded gradually in bits and pieces, uh, uh, sort of like a mystery. And that framing of a mystery as opposed to a problem uh, really helped me understand that, that I just need to keep asking questions to, try to solve this mystery, but idea that there is no solution. So the idea of looking at uh, mental health issues was very new to me, and the more I explored that, both with family, with friends, doing a lot of reading about it, and and even in currently current ways, uh, you began to realize that there's the struggle that's going on, and there's still the secret that's that's carried with us. And how do we grapple with these secrets? One way is we start telling stories, and I think the key is both policy but also personal. When you make these stories personal, they carry a different weight. And this, obviously, this story with Shizuko with my family was very personal, and that's why I like that idea, all families have secrets. Every family has a secret. And if you probe often, there's probably some mental health issues that are probably those secrets that no one wants to talk about. But once you start talking about them, it brings them out on a public platform and it shifts the meaning. So suddenly, instead of something being shameful with guilt, it's actually more of a personal story that defines us. And that's what happened with my family too. Uh, And again, that uh, it was uncomfortable to share the story on the one level. And on the other level, it was this calling that I had. uh, Early on, at one point, when I started piecing this story together, I thought I should write a novel about this because then I don't have to worry about telling this family secret as much. Uh, And I realized I'm not that good of a novelist. Uh, I I kept going back to saying, no, you can't make things up because I'm a nonfiction writer. So part of the, uh, the, the book itself, uh, just for some people who may not have seen it yet, it's divided into sections where each, uh, each chapter begins with, uh, a section that's in, uh, italics. And that's part of Shizuko's story is in italics, which I didn't know much of. And I wanted to be honest about that, uh, because I wanted to keep that, that, uh, honesty that we didn't know a lot, and I still don't know a lot, but that's part of the story about family. There's a lot we don't know, and we may never know, but that doesn't mean it didn't happen. And again, it gets back to, uh, to working with Patricia. We had no photograph of Shizuko. So does that mean she didn't exist? Of course not. You know. Uh, so as, as working with Patricia, I wanted to see what she lo- what what look like and that's where Patricia came up with her illustrations that this is what Chizuko look like and it was wonderful because again it suddenly it added an image to my writing and then I could work off that image and there's nothing wrong with that because as we work through our memories memories aren't rigid they are actually evolving as we age uh, and 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 as more information. And all those pieces of information help tell the stories. So that's why, again, uh, Patricia didn't tell you that when I first approached her, I said, you know, Patricia, you know, would you mind doing like two or three illustrations for this book? And it slowly expanded from two or three to maybe a dozen. Uh, there's 30 something chapters in this book. So, <laughs> Patricia did 34. Is it illustrations that are in the book? In the cover. So
0: that was was the last minute thing yeah there was a lot um you know I want to piggyback really quickly on someone else's question about from Grace Carroll asking so if the family if you were uncomfortable sharing this story how did you actually get to that place of the courage to be like okay I'm doing it I'm just writing it and I know this has to do with your process as well because like you said, that at one point you thought it was going to be a novel. I know you experimented with kind of adopting Shizuko's voice, but then, you know, turned away from that. I don't know. There's something in here about like, where was the turning point for you to be like, OK, this is it. How do I know I can do this? How do I show
1: this to family? One thing to realize, this book, I went through 65 drafts. Because each draft kept evolving and the story evolved and it really needed to go through 65 drafts uh, because I was struggling. I was struggling with how to tell the story. I was struggling on on what kind of framing to do. I was struggling on uh, how honest to be about family. Uh, and there were certain moments in it that I realized uh, that one relative blurted out something and I go, oh, wow, that's a really great line to use. And I realized I can't frame it exactly that way because it would be embarrassing for that relative. So I recrafted it. I didn't change it, but I embedded it in a different way. And that took time to that. And that's that whole process of trying to come to grips with the story. And that's why everybody who has their own family secret will end up telling the story their own way. And it should be told their own way uh, in that sense, because every family is unique and how they do things. So uh, uh, that's part of why I approached Patricia f- to do some illustrations, because I knew there were things in the story that needed to be expanded, and an illustrator could help expand that in different ways. And that was part of a, a, one of the topics that we were talking about, Patricia and I earlier, was I often worked with illustrators in all my books. And why part of it was, I, I wasn't sure I was a good enough writer To carry the whole meaning, but an illustration could advance the story, could expand the story in a different way. And I found it wonderful because Patricia's illustrations help expand the story. So I don't have to try to make up anything to fill in the gaps. Uh, And I think that works wonderful. Uh, And I always love working with artists in different ways. You know, how would a musician frame this story? What would be the theme song for this? I love thinking about those kind of dynamics and everything too.
0: I see Nancy Holm smiling and nodding. She she gets
1: it. <laughs> Patricia, there's uh, a question that Amy Hunter asked you, yeah, right? Yeah, Amy. How did you create Shizuko's look? Sister. Was that based on Moss's relatives? It
0: was partly. So again, I should I should say that we do have photographs of Shizuko, but it's not until Moss met Shizuko, right? So it begins there and I had some kind of reference point of this woman who must have been, I don't know, was she what, 89, 90 years old
1: at that point? She was 90 and that's the only picture we have of her, she's a 90 year old.
0: So I could use that and I did look at historical photographs, but when it came to the cover, which was the very first illustration I did, I just decided, because actually another thing was that when Moss first came to me, well, no, the first title was called Blue Moon. And then the second title was Shizuko. And when he landed on Shizuko, I was like, okay, Shizuko. It's gotta be Shizuko on the cover. And um, I'd say that part of it was looking at family photos. Part of it was just looking, sifting through photographs of Nisei women who were about 22 years old in that time period. Like there's a certain look, I think, that farming people had back before the war. Ultimately, I wanted Chisiko to be so beautiful. I wanted Shizuko to be full of vitality and full of that energy, but also serenity. There was something I had wished upon her um, that I think she did embody when she lived on the farm with her family before the war, before she was separated. So, That's pretty much how I crafted it. I will tell you though, Amy, because you're a good friend, that I struggled later because partly, partly because I've never done a full book before. I had only done spot illustrations that were commissioned to me, like maybe two or three or maybe six was the most. And this was a huge challenge. But um, the thing that was really difficult and I would redo again if I was given the chance to just do the whole book over again, and that was aging, she's a goal. So there are images of her when she is a young, young child. That was a choice that I made. I mean, Moss also gave me complete free reign. He said, never said a word to me about what needs to be here, what needs to be this illustration, what do I see as a visual language and accompaniment for that. So there are different stages where she's a is at different ages. And again, if I had done this better, I would have actually done character sketches from the beginning and aged her all in one sketchbook. But I didn't do that. I actually did the the cover one first, and then I went backwards. And then, you know, I think I used the one, the photographs that he had um, from meeting her in the 2000s. And it, it's a little bit of a hodgepodge. I, I'm not proud of that, but it's it was a learning thing to understand, like, how do you go through that process with somebody going backwards in time? That was actually a really huge challenge. Again, again, the Nancy Hom nodding.
1: I know she knows what I'm talking about. So thanks for course, well, but But in a fun way, and, and I hope people understand that, you know, writing a book, doing the illustrations, it's a journey, okay? It's not like I knew how this book was going to end. I knew how things would happen. I knew all the sequence. And that's why it went through 65 drafts uh, because it kept shifting and growing. And I thought get better and better. Oh, there are drafts that got worse. Okay, I will admit that. <laughs> uh, and And getting feedback from different people. And then uh, again, uh, you know, as as Patricia would do an illustration, we talk and expand on that. And and part of the idea was this was this fun journey, and this journey continues now. Sharing this with you know at City Lights and this wonderful audience, it was part of that dynamic too. That it's the journey of sharing this story, uh, and I hope our paths keep crossing with with. You and the audience and everything, please reach out to us and and uh, uh, and and because I plan to be telling this story for years, <laughs> uh, in many ways, and uh, and I want to hear other people's story too, because uh, certainly uh, one thing that uh, that uh, Alice has taught me was the idea that you need to be vocal on this. Um, and I think that that is so true with, with a lot of stories, especially in the Asian American, Japanese American community. We tend to be dominated by the silence. There's meaning in the silence, and that's what we need to try to get, and that's what we need to try to capture.
2: Wow, that was amazing. Thanks to you both. I mean, it has been such a great pleasure and an honor to have you with us tonight. Uh, Patricia, it's been a while since we've seen each other. So this is a real, real treat. And there's such a compelling and heartening family story. I mean, such beautiful artwork to go along with it. A really great combination. So much respect to you both. Um, Today's event has been made possible by support from the City Lights Foundation Foundation, continuing the legacy of our founder, the late Lawrence Ferlinghetti, through public events like this one, our publishing program, and educational outreach, all dedicated to sustaining a vibrant community of readers, writers, and independent thinkers. So uh, thank you, everyone. And uh, David, congratulations. An amazing, amazing story, an amazing, amazing book. It's such a great honor to have you.
1: Uh, Thank you. And thanks, everyone for sticking around and hearing this. Uh, it's its a story I think uh, that resonates with our families uh, and and I hope it was a story that, that was able to elevate our thinking. It wasn't, it's not, here's the key, it, I realize it's not my story. It's all of our stories.
0: Thanks for listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast from City Lights bookstore and publishers. Our theme music was provided by Axolotl, all City Lights events are free. To see upcoming events at City Lights Bookstore in San Francisco, check out www.citylights.com events.